This morning we're going to return back to our study through the Gospel of John. We'll be in John chapter 7 this morning. And Jesus is going to address some really personal questions this morning. So are you ready to get personal this morning? Because the Scripture is going to get pretty personal with us this morning. First thing we're going to see this morning is the question of, are you satisfied? That's a deep question. There's many layers to it. Are you satisfied? Or the flip side, as, as Jesus was speaking of, are you thirsty? And he's not speaking of in a physical sense, as we'll see, but he's talking about the longing of our soul. Is your soul satisfied? Or is your soul thirsty? Are you longing for something more? This is what's going to be pointed out to us this morning. Jesus is going to be very direct with this this morning. Secondly, he's going to address the question, is God's life flowing out of you, out of your innermost being, and bringing satisfaction to you and to others? Is God's spirit flowing out of you, out of your innermost being? And is it bringing satisfaction to you and to others? You know, it's interesting because I can remember as a child, Christmas was exciting. It was exciting because that was when I was receiving all the gifts, not buying all the gifts. It's a little different. You all know what I'm talking about. A little different when you're paying for everything compared to when you're receiving everything. But as a child, you just go and open all the presents. and You're excited because you didn't have to work for anything, do anything. You just received it. And as a child, there were times that I longed for something for Christmas. Maybe it was the latest video game that I longed for. And I couldn't wait to have it. And then I got it. And then within three days, I had solved that game and I was done with it. It was on the shelf. And then I was thirsty for something more. But there are things much deeper than just gifts under the tree during Christmas time. It's what brings satisfaction to our souls. Do you ever feel like there's, there's just something more? There's got to be something more to life. Do you ever long for more? Well, this morning, Jesus is going to point to himself and say, it's me. I am the one to satisfy your deepest thirst. With that said, let's pray before we get into the scriptures this morning. Father, we thank you so much that this morning we gather for some to hear that Jesus is the one who quenches the innermost thirst, but for others to be reminded of that truth. For even as believers, many of us can come and wander and think that there's got to be something else and become dissatisfied in life. Father, we pray through the power of your Spirit this morning that you would draw all of us unto yourself, that you would illuminate your truth to us as we study your word this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes, the title of our sermon this morning is Rivers of Living Water. Rivers of Living Water. I'm going to recap in our intro, chapter 7 of the Gospel of John. We studied a couple weeks ago the first 24 verses. But if you recall, and you can open up your Bibles to it as well and follow along, John opens up chapter 7 talking about Jesus was up in the Galilean area because he couldn't go to Judea because the Jews were desiring to kill him. You guys remember what Jesus had done that incited the Jews? He had healed a man. Well, what's the big deal with that? Do you remember the day of the week he had done it on? He had done it on the Sabbath. And ever since then they have turned and they want to kill him. But Jesus says, it's not just that I've done that. It's that I speak to you and tell you that your works are evil, that you're really upset. And this morning, as we continue studying, he's going to dig a little deeper. And he's going to tell him, you think you know God, but you don't know God. 
And that's going to incite them a little bit more. But John chapter 7 starts off, Jesus' brothers tell him, hey, Jesus, go up. The, the feast is at hand, the Feast of Booths. Go up to the feast in Jerusalem that everybody might see your works. Sounds really good that his brothers are believing in him. But they just wanted the association of, hey, that's my brother doing this stuff. They didn't believe in him. So Jesus says, you know, I'm not going to go up like that. I'm not going up publicly. And instead, after his brothers had gone, he ends up going up privately. And as he's heading up there, we read in John's gospel that the people are already muttering about Jesus. Where is he? They're looking for him. They're wondering who he might be. Some are looking to kill him. Some are wondering, is he really the Christ? They're saying all kinds of things about him. And he gets into Jerusalem, and it says halfway through the Feast of Booths, he goes into the temple. And Jesus goes in, he begins teaching. And the people marvel at him. Where did he get this type of learning? Where did he learn all of these things? And then it starts this chaos. Jesus says to them, well, you're seeking to kill me. And they say, who's seeking to kill you? They say, you, you must have a demon. They accuse him of having a demon. Even though they wanted to kill him, put him to death, they say he has a demon. And then he goes and he addresses them in the temple. And it brings us all this chaos and confusion when he talks about, look, you're only mad at me because I healed a man on the Sabbath, but you guys will circumcise on the Sabbath. And you don't have a problem with that. Because you're so spiritually blind, you guys can't judge rightly. And that brings us up right up into verse 25 where we jump in this morning. So if your Bible's open, John verse 25, we're going to walk through this together this morning. It says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Now stop there for a second. Go back in your Bible, back to verse 20. Trickle down to verse 20. What did it say in verse 20? The crowd told him, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? They're saying, you're crazy. No one's seeking to kill you. And then out of the next breath, we see in verse 25, the crowd says, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? You say, what is going on? I'm telling you, there is major chaos going on. There is major confusion. That church, when we speak of Jesus, stuff gets stirred. Jesus comes in the room, and there's all kinds of chaos and confusion. Not because he brings confusion, but because man wants to reject him and find any right way to dismiss him. And confusion begins right here. Again, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Verse 26, and here he is. He's speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Think about it. The authorities, the, the, the religious leaders, they want to kill him. Jesus is in the temple speaking, and yet no one's saying anything to them. The crowd's thinking, something is weird here. They want to kill him. Here he is. He's right in front of them, and no one is saying anything. And here's what they reason, verse 26. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Meaning, do they know to keep their hands off him? Do they know not to touch him and they're duping us? They're not letting us in? And they're starting to think. And they're starting to wonder, could this be the Christ? But then they try to reason it out and say, well, maybe it's not. Verse 27, they say, we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. I have a question for you. Where in your Bible does it say that? That no one would know where he comes from? Well, where do they get this from? These are the Jewish leaders. They know the Old Testament scriptures. 
And they're saying, well, no. No one will know where he comes from. There was a misinterpretation, a tradition that started off in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. We'll put it up on the screen. You don't have to flip there. But based upon Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it reads, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. They took that to say that out of nowhere, the Messiah would just come into the temple. They would have no idea where he came from. Now that's a big stretch from that one verse. As a matter of fact, we know the scripture would declare where the Messiah would be born. They would know where he would come from. But they took this, they built a tradition off it, and it was just one more excuse to dismiss the claims of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but perhaps you've shared with somebody before, you're sharing the truth of Jesus, and they know just a little bit of Scripture. And they know how to use just that little bit of Scripture to twist the truth. That's what's happening here. It's demonic in nature. It's to reject Christ. And their tradition is doing the same thing here. But Jesus has an answer. Jesus is going to cite the, incite them a little bit more. He says in verse 28 and 29, it says, So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, he says, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. Now remember, they believed in the only true God, that there was one God, and he was the true God. Jesus is saying, that's who sent me. And he says, and in him you do not know him. Him you do not know. He says, I know him, for I come from him and he sent me. Now, wait, in all what he just said, what do you think perked up the ears the most? Him you do not know. These are the religious leaders. you got to catch these words he's speaking here. The most religious, the most privileged, the most well-taught people in the world, the very oracles of God, the Jewish scriptures were given to them. Jesus says, you don't know God. How did that calm the audience? You think they went, oh, well, then tell us. We want to know more. How do you think they responded to that? Well, Jesus goes on. He's like, you know what? That's the reason you want to kill me. He said, the reason you want to kill me is because I know God. I'm from God. God sent me. And since you don't know him, he says, you can't recognize me. That theme that if you don't know Jesus, you don't know the Father, runs all the way through the book of John. John says it over and over again, that if you do not know the Son, you do not know the Father. We see it five times in John's Gospel. Starting in John chapter 5, verse 23, the latter part says, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's the first time we see it in John's Gospel. A few verses later, chapter 5, verses 42 and 43, we read, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come, Jesus says, in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Next chapter, John chapter 6, the latter half of verse 45, we read, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, Jesus says. Everybody who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. John chapter 8, verse 19, the latter half, Jesus answers. He says, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. 
And then also in John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. You guys see the correlation? If someone says they know God, but do not know Jesus Christ, they do not know God. They are alive. They are deceived. They do not know the truth. Jesus makes it very clear. If you don't know Him, you don't know the Father. Yet, you can turn on the television, you can watch a show, and people talk about God all the time. I'm not sure they're talking about a capital G-O-D. It most likely is a lowercase G-O-D, some idol they're speaking of. But they speak of Him as the one true God. Hey, I know God. I know the way to God. Well, guess what the best way to help someone discern whether or not they know God? That's what the best way to help them discern. Who are you going to present to them? You're going to present Jesus Christ to them. Present Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one that was crucified for sinners as the only hope of the world, and see how they respond. When you, respect, excuse me, when you present the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, if they know God, they'll receive Jesus. But if they do not know God, they're not going to hear it. Think about the Muslim. The Hindu, the Buddhist, those who all, I mean, you can go into Chino Hills. There's that Baps temple on the side of the freeway. You see all these little temples. Inside those temples, they put in a god, G, lowercase g-o-d, that they would go and they would worship. But guess what? They say they know God. You have to present Jesus to them. That is the discerner of whether or not they truly know the one true God. If they receive Christ and Christ alone, then they know God the Father. But if you go into that Baptist temple, you will learn they have thousands, not millions, of gods. And they're hoping that one of them will bring them peace and nirvana and afterlife. Very sad. But Jesus is the one that we're bringing the discernment. If they have Jesus as Lord and Savior, then they have God as Father. And the flip is true as well. If they do not have Christ as Lord and Savior, then they do not have the Father. Jesus here in our text this morning, he's confronting the Jewish religious leaders with the fact that you do not know God. Church, we've seen it as we've studied through this Gospel of John. Jesus continues to be confrontational. Instead of seeing people rise up against him and saying, oh, I better do whatever I can to calm these people, he speaks truth. You know, sometimes, and we often say, truth hurts. You ever say that to somebody? Truth hurts. Now, we're not to be mean to people. We're not to poke and prod at them. But we're to present truth. When Jesus says you do not know him, well, guess what? There's going to be hope to know him. There's going to be hope at the end of this. These people who prided themselves the most spiritual people on the planet at the time are being told, what you promote and what you say, you don't even know. You don't know God. These are fighting words. They're words of truth, but they're necessary truth. Verse 30, if you look in your Bibles, John chapter 7, verse 30, it says, so they were seeking to arrest him. No surprises, right? Jesus goes, speaks truth to them. They want to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now, I want to ask you a question. What weapons was Jesus carrying? 
Did he have a huge sword? He's like, don't come near me. Everybody stay away. And nothing. And yet they're angry. They want him dead. They want him arrested. And yet what do we read here? No one laid a hand on him. My question to you, church, is why? What was preventing them? Come on, it's not a trick question. God. God's plan will prevail. Man will not be able to usurp God's plan. Here, this is God's divine timetable. Jesus says, look, my hour has not yet come. Guess what? His hour has not yet come. Nothing is going to happen against him. God is in control. Verse 31 says, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So here you have a crowd. You have those who want to kill him, those who want him arrested, those who are wondering, why is no one laying a hand on him? If, if this is the guy and he's, he's so bad, why don't they arrest him? And then you have others that go, you know what? Nobody has done what this man has done. And everything we know about the Christ has been done in this man. And in the middle of this temple, guess what? People come to know him. Right in the middle of all the chaos, they see the signs and they affirm them. But the problem is the religious leaders hear what's going on. And we pick it up in the next verse, verse 32. The Pharisees, these religious leaders, they heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. That was it. They were done. People are starting to believe in this Jesus. Send in the officers or arrest them. Well, if you read ahead, it's going to be some time until you find out what actually happened. So let's peek ahead a little bit, not in our text this morning, but look down to verse 45 and 46. We see what happened with these officers. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? They were sent. They were given an order to go and arrest him. And in verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Now, if you know anything about officers, they had to submit to the orders of their commander. When they're given an order, they had to do it. They were given an order to go and arrest Jesus. They went, and as we'll study what Jesus actually said in their hearing, they were in awe. No one has ever said these words. And they did not lay a hand upon him. Verse 33 and 34, Jesus says, he says, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Jesus is displaying that he has authority over all things. This is about roughly six months before the crucifixion and the resurrection that this is occurring. So six months ahead of time, Jesus is already talking about, look, I'm going to a place you can't come. He's telling them these things. He's saying, look, you might try to arrest me, but I'll choose where I go. And I choose when I go. And I choose who may follow me. Jesus is not being arrogant here. He's showing he's in complete control. He has all authority. He's saying, you can't take me earlier than God's plan. It's not going to happen. He says, you won't keep me here when I choose to leave. You can't follow me later because your plans are futile. Everything that you're trying to plot are absolutely futile. He goes, I have come to do my father's will, not yours. 
and my Father's will will prevail. Christ has complete authority. He's making that known to them that over all things, it is his will, it is, excuse me, it's the Father's will, and he will submit to that, and that will prevail. Down to verse 35 and 36, the Jews then respond. They said, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Guess what? They are completely clueless. They haven't got a clue. Everything, just as we've gone through John, we got to Nicodemus, and Jesus tells him, you must be born again. He goes, what? How does someone go back into their mother's womb and be born again? Everything was literal, and they had no idea of the spiritual connection he was making. They were spiritually blind. Absolutely clueless here. Verses 25 to 36, we've just run through them, and all of that is to paint the tension that is going on in the crowd. John writes all that to show us what's going on, the chaos among the people, the confusion to the identity of Jesus. Some say, this must be the Messiah, and believe. Others say, we got to kill him. We need to arrest him. We must remove him. And others are just completely dumbfounded. We have no idea who he is. John writes all of this, not only to show us that God's in full control, but he's building this tension on purpose. He's got the majority of the crowd confused. The identity of Christ, for many, is unknown. And the hysteria is building. But John does this on purpose. All the stuff spinning in the audience is to point us to the next verses. John's going to take us from all this happening in the temple, all this confusion over who Christ is, what should happen with Christ, to take us right to verses 37, 39 on the last day of the feast. You'll see if you look in your Bibles, there's a quick transition at the end of verse 36 into verse 37. It is intentional. It is purposeful by John because he's pointing all these people, those who plotted against him, those who were confused, Jesus is going to give an invitation. But it's important for us to know the background of this Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths that they were up in Jerusalem celebrating, there was a daily rite. And when I say rite, R-I-T-E, like a ceremonial act. And that act is the people would gather at the Temple of Herod, and the priest would come out, and he would grab a golden pitcher. And they would have a procession where they sang psalms all the way to the Pool of Siloam. And there... They would uh, together recite Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, which says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. They did this every day. The priest then takes his golden pitcher, scoops of water, and then the procession goes back to the temple. And they all go back with him. The priest comes in, he circles the altar, he stands up, and the crowd is excited because it was a privilege to be able to see the water actually pouring out. The water symbolizing the future pouring out of God's spirit upon his people. And tradition holds that the people would shout, higher, higher, so they can see from the crowd him pouring out this water out of the pitcher. And he would pour the water out upon the altar every single day of this. On the seventh day, the final day of this, the priest would actually come in and do seven turns around the altar. Does that remind you of anything? Over Jericho? And he would do the same thing and pour it out. That imagery is what Jesus is going to pick up on. 
The people are excited about this water being poured out. The future blessing of God's spirit being poured out upon them. That's what the mentality is here. And this brings us to these closing verses that we're going to focus on this morning. John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. Jesus did what, did what he did throughout his ministry is he used what was around as a visual imagery to bring home the truth. I believe this is exactly why he went up to the feast for this very moment. He went for this moment. It says in verse 37 that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now think about it. The priest, in this golden pitcher, pouring out this water on the altar, was a symbolism. They were excited about the future blessing of God that would pour out his Spirit. Jesus then comes and basically saying, that only comes through me, is what he's going to present. That blessing of the Spirit is only through me. It's poured out through me. I told you earlier, this is about six months prior to his crucifixion and resurrection. So the Spirit had not yet come. Remember Christ crucified, resurrected, was in bodily form, appeared to the disciples in the 500, and later he went back into heaven, and then on the day of Pentecost, his Spirit was poured out. You guys remember that? Acts? So that hadn't happened yet. That's what we read in verse 39. But Jesus gives an invitation, and that's what we're looking at this morning. His style, this style of invitation, it would cause the Jews to think of Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, that says, Come, everyone who thirsts. This is scripture they'd be familiar with. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price, which means this is free. There's no charge. Come and get it. Jesus uses the same language in verse 37. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I want to point the first word out to you. If anyone. Who's he speaking to? Is it, when he says if anyone, is he saying anyone who has right standing before me? Is he saying anyone who has been good? Think about who was in the crowd when he says, if anyone, who's standing out there? Well, you have the chief priests. You have the officers who are trying to arrest him. You have the Pharisees who want to kill him. And then you have all the other crowd that's in confusion. Every single one of us, he says, look, anybody, if any of you would come and drink. Same thing he said to the crowd then. He says, now if anyone would come and drink. He's inviting those who are thirsty. Thirsty. You know, what, what's the prerequisite? Jesus' only prerequisite here is that you're thirsty. He says, is your soul longing for something? He says, then come. Come. He says, it's not about whether you have all your stuff together and all your stuff straightened out. It's not whether you feel worthy or not. It's not whether you understand everything about God. It only depends on whether you are thirsty. What are you speaking of? Is your soul longing? Is your soul thirsty? 
I love the way that Jesus is presenting himself here because he doesn't go on this big, huge theological treatise. He just says, are you thirsty? Come and drink of the water. Come to me. He says, I am the living water. This water is free. Just like you know from Isaiah chapter 55, it's free. Come and have it. The soul that thirsts, Jesus says, I will satisfy. I will satisfy your thirst forever. You know, Jesus does not have what our soul needs. Jesus is what our soul needs. Do you understand the difference? It's not like the, the priest who had that, that golden picture and had the water inside of it and you needed what he had. Jesus is what our soul needs. Again, in verse 37, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So, are you thirsty? Jesus says, come. He says, drink. He says, don't just acknowledge that he's the living water. You need to come. You need to drink. But what does that mean? He had described previously in chapter 6, we see a correlation between words in verse 35. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus had said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Coming to Christ, drinking of Christ, is genuine belief. It's coming to him in faith. It's grabbing a hold of him and receiving him. I mean, imagine this. And for some of you might be able to relate. I can't necessarily relate. I've never been stranded, let's say, in a desert. Let's say it's the heat of summer. And you're in the desert, and you're stranded, and you drink your last water bottle, and you end up being there for four days in the heat of summer. I want you to think about your condition. How do you think you're feeling after four days without water? I heard it. Don't be shy. You're thirsty. You're dehydrated. <laughs> your head's hurting. Your mouth is parched. You've got you know, dried chap, and then you get that little white cotton mouth going on. Now imagine, Pastor Manny shows up. Manny, we'll make you the hero of the story. Pastor Manny shows up with a case of water. What do you think about it? You're thirsty. He shows up, puts the case of water right in front of you. Do you think you would just stand there and marvel at the case of water? Wow. That water looks amazing. I can't believe that water's here. Do you think you would stare at the water and say, that water right there, that sure would satisfy my thirst? I don't think so. Do you think you'd go open the package, pick up one bottle, just marvel, wow, what a nice cap. Wow, 90% less plastic, that's good for the environment. Do you think you would just start commentating on the bottle? You wouldn't. Nor would you take the bottle, open it up, and go, yep, that's water, and put it down. What would you do? You would guzzle it. And not only that one, you would take that bottle, not worried about the environment, you throw that bottle, you pick up the next one, guzzle it, and you would keep going and going and going until you were satiated. You took ownership of that water. You went and you consumed it. You knew I needed it, you needed it, I need it, we all need it, and you took it in. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying you should know about me and marvel at me. He shouldn't say you should come up and just dabble with me. He's saying you should come and consume all of me. You should come and take all of me. 
And Jesus says, as a result of that, of fully coming to him, being fully consumed in him. You know, there are tons of people who say, you know, I know Jesus. And they don't know Jesus. They know about Jesus. When he says, come and drink, it's that you would truly know him, that you would be fully vested in him. That's not that I come to Christ to see what can I get out of Christ? How is he going to work for me? It's that I come to him, that I have Christ, that I have the fullness of Christ. Jesus teaches them that when they come and when they drink, that one, he will, he will satisfy their inner thirst, the longing of their soul, that their soul will be satisfied. But then he says something else is going to happen. He says that God is going to fill them with his spirit so that rivers of living water will flow out of their heart. Look at verse 38. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And we know from the next verse, Jesus said this hasn't happened yet. Didn't happen until the day of Pentecost. But he's given the invitation saying, you guys are excited by this priest who carries this golden pitcher, goes and dips it in the pool of Siloam, carries it back, pours it on the altar as a future blessing. Well, guess what? I'm here. He presents himself as the living water, and says when you come and you drink, that river, those rivers of living water will flow out of you. The Spirit of God that you're excited that will be poured out will be coming out of you. And that could happen today. You know, the Spirit is so important. The Spirit is the identifier that we're a child of God. It's the Spirit of God that says that we belong to Christ. Without the Spirit of God in us, the Bible says we don't know Him. That it's the spirits that they're in The Apostle Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. He says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Jesus came and said, I am here. I'm here to confirm all these things, to bring salvation and hope. He says, when you come and you drink of me, when you believe and trust solely in me, Jesus says, Rivers of living water will flow through your heart. Some of you go, well, what does that mean? Am I going to be like all squishy? You know, after you drink water and you hear it sloshing in your stomach? Is that what's going to happen? He's saying not only will your soul be satisfied, but it's going to flow out of you to others. That you're going to be a blessing to others. That your joy in the Lord will be uncontainable. It will spill out to those around you. Have you ever been around a new believer? Someone who God has saved and they know I have been radically saved by the grace of God? Oh, there's such a joy to be around. Because they love everything. that God is so big and, and he's done such great and mighty things. But what happens when that same person goes year after year after year? Some don't sustain the same joy. Some kind of slow down a little bit. Do you think the Spirit of God has changed in that person? The Spirit of God hasn't changed. Some of you in here this morning know exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus comes and says, come and drink that you might be satisfied. And you come in today and you're like, hold on. We read Psalm 42 earlier. It was intentional. Because as the psalmist wrote, he goes, man, I'm downcast. You ever felt downcast? What was his answer? Hope in God. 
put your eyes back on God. That my joy would be in Him. That I would be satisfied in Him and in Him alone. So the question then is, are you satisfied? Are you satisfied? Or are you thirsty? Are you satisfied or are you thirsty? Is God's Spirit flowing out of your innermost being? Is it bringing satisfaction to your soul and to others around you? I ask again, are you satisfied? I'm not talking about just with temporal things that come and go. I'm talking about the longing of your soul. Are you content with Christ and Christ alone? Have you come to him? Have you come and drink and been satiated with him? Have you drunk deep and long of the waters of grace? You know, it's been often said, it's not how you start a race that matters. It's how you finish. And we've all seen the great illustrations of different sprints and races from Olympics where someone gets out of the blocks really quick, yet comes up gimpy at the end and doesn't finish the race. Here, this satiated feeling of the longing of my soul can be completely satisfied satisfied now and forever in Christ. That all is well, my soul. Can you say that? When things around you look difficult and the relationships go awry and everything else, can you stay and be satisfied that all is well, my soul? That this world might fall apart around me, but I have tasted and I know that my God is good. I have come to Christ and I have drunk from Him. Church, maybe this morning, for some of you, it's the first time to come to Jesus, to drink from Him, to consume Him, to have Christ and to have salvation in His name, that there is no other way but through Christ. But perhaps for many of us this morning, it's more a refreshment that we need. It's a refreshment that we need to come back to Christ, to come back to our first love. Yeah, we know those things from when we first started, but we've forgotten. And now our soul begins to long for something else. There must be something else. If only I, we had this or I had that, and then things would be okay. Church, if you have Christ, you have everything. You have everything. There is nothing that is more valuable than Jesus Christ, both now and forever. And perhaps this morning you need to be reminded of that. That your soul is beginning to start wanting. It's become wanting and it's going, well, just something else. This morning, Jesus said, come and drink. Drink afresh. Come and be satisfied once more and let rivers of living water flow again from your heart to others. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the ongoing hope that we have in Christ. Father, that we look at your word and for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, that we have come, that we have drunk of the living water, that, Lord, perhaps we've been distracted. And perhaps we've turned our eyes to other things and, and no longer are we feeling satisfied in Christ alone. God, we thank you that your word does not condemn us, but your word encourages us to hope in you, to turn our eyes back to you, to be comforted in you, to be satisfied in Christ alone. And, Father, perhaps there's someone here this morning who has never come to drink from Christ. That today, by the power of your Spirit, you would illuminate that truth to them. That perhaps just like that water, that case of water when they were thirsty would be sitting on the ground, 
perhaps year after year they've marveled at it, they've looked at it, just as they would look at Christ and say, yes, I know he's here to save. I know that he's able to save, but they've never come. Might this morning be the day they come and receive. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.